0: You ready? Let's go. I want to say hi to everybody in this room, to everybody joining us at all of our campuses, to everybody tuning in online. I'm so glad you're here for this message. Um, I think probably everybody has got a story about some missed financial opportunity. I will tell you one from my family. My dad's Aunt Fran was a private duty nurse in the 1920s and 30s. She worked for a Swedish immigrant named Ivar Jepsen who spent his time tinkering with appliances in the garage. And he told her, Francis, I'm on to something great. You ought to take all of your money and invest it in what I'm doing. So my friend went to the bank. This is Rockford, Illinois. This is the depths of the Depression. She was a woman. And the officers of the bank told her no. For her own sake, they were not going to let her withdraw her money and invest it in what some guy's doing in his garage. The appliance that he was tinkering on ended up being called a kitchen appliance uh, named a Mixmaster. The company was Sunbeam, $10,000 in the middle of the Depression then, invested in this operation in a garage, would have ended up being hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars today. And it did not happen because some stupid (laughs) men at the stupid (laughs) bank said no. And it made my dad really sad because my Aunt Fran had no children and he was her favorite nephew and I am his firstborn son. I think... Tons of people have a uh, what-could-have-been, what-might-have-been, if-only financial story, especially here in the Bay Area. And I had a strange thought. What if you could ask dead people what their biggest financial regrets are? It's very interesting. If you do a Google search of the word retirement, the financial services industry, now valued at $27 trillion, provides countless calculators so that you can figure out how much money you have got to have before you retire. People's biggest fear in our day is actually that they're going to outlive their financial kitty. Everybody wants to know, what's the number that I got to hit financially? I can actually help you with that one. Make sure you die before your money runs out. Otherwise, God might bless you with a long, long, long life. That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? See, conventional wisdom says, make sure you have a financial plan that lasts until the day you die. Kingdom wisdom, Jesus' wisdom says, make sure you plan for the day after the day you die. In other words, when my earthly life is over and I enter into eternity, how will I, more importantly, how will God evaluate my financial life then? I think when people stand before God, most of them don't say, I sure wish I'd piled up more stuff. I think most people on the other side of death would say, I wish I could have experienced less financial worry and strain and anxiety. I wish I would have expressed more financial generosity. I wish I'd have trusted God more. I wish I'd have been more generous with what I have, the way that God is generous with all that He has. And gang, I want to tell you, Now is the time. My experience, very few people drift into a life of generosity. That is why we're in this series called Practice Not Perfect. We are looking at the practices that God can use to change us from the inside so that we can live in the reality of His presence and care and kingdom more and more. And in the last chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, He writes about this. He writes what to a lot of people look like just a couple of throwaway sentences on collecting some money for some folks that are poor in Jerusalem. Here's what he says. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, this passage is actually quite remarkable. It reflects an explosive new financial reality in the world in Paul's day. And for anybody who is genuinely interested in how to practice becoming a generous person, You are going to find out today. Several observations about generous people. First, generous people believe giving is life's greatest investment strategy. Paul calls this a collection for the Lord's people. And we read about this collection in several places in the New Testament. Uh, He's collecting money for some of the poor who live in Jerusalem. And you might think, well, it's a nice little project, but nothing earth-shattering. Actually, there's something going on here that the financial community in the world did not understand yet, but was momentous. Jewish people and Gentile people had been enemies for ages. But there were prophecies, ancient prophecies, that said one day that would change. The prophet Isaiah, for example, had said centuries before Paul, in the last days, The mountain of the Lord's temple, that is Jerusalem, will be established as the highest, the greatest, the most glorious of the mountains. And all the nations, all the peoples, all the cultures will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. And now Paul had come to believe that the ancient prophecies were coming true, that the Gentiles were coming to love Israel's God, that a new family was being knit together. Now, how could this ever be communicated? What would be the concrete sign? Paul had an idea. He could get Gentiles, most of whom, by the way, did not have much money. Most of them were dirt poor, peasants and slaves, but he could get them to give money to needy Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and get those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to receive it gratefully, and that would change everything. Now, this was a crazy financial idea. Gentiles would not give to the Jewish poor. It would be like going to Uber and doing a fundraiser for Lyft, going to Stanford, doing a fundraiser for Cal. Nobody would do this, except it happened. It was like an economic miracle. It was an explosion of love, power, generosity that created a new financial reality. When Paul wrote to Corinth, this project did not look like much. A couple of scattered communities mentions Galatia. They're kind of still in the tinker in the garage phase. All the smart money was being bet on Rome. All the smart money was, was going into the Colosseum. 2,000 years later, the Colosseum is a wreck if you've seen it. Nobody's running for Caesar anymore. But the church, oh my goodness, cannot be stopped. See, when you are generous with God, you are in fact investing in the only sure and certain project in history. Not a mixed master, just the master. Not sunbeam, just the sun. Generous people understand this. Another dynamic with generous people, generous people believe in God's faithfulness. They have come to know that God is faithful. Uh, When Paul is giving instructions about the practice of giving, he says that in Corinth they are to do it on the first day of every week. Interestingly, he doesn't simply say do it every week. He doesn't say do it on the second day or the third day or wait till the seventh day and see if you have any money left over. He says, do it on the first day. Now, that phrase, the first day of the week, would strike an immediate chord in everybody listening. We would tend to miss this, but it matters. Uh, in all four of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, Mark 16, verse 1, Luke 24, verse 1, John chapter 20, verse 1, that precise phrase gets used in this, in this way. On the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. On the first day of the week, the angel said, he is not here. On the first day of the week, death lost its victory and the grave lost its sting. If you're a Bible person, you might know that in Israel, it was the seventh day, the Sabbath day that was reserved for rest and worship. In the Jesus community, that special day got shifted to the first day of the week. And the reason was the first day was resurrection day. And this passage, 1 Corinthians, is the first New Testament mention of the special significance of Sunday, the first day, Resurrection Day. The idea here is put resurrection reality into your financial practice. You have heard of capitalism and socialism, trickle-down economics, Keynesian economics. This is resurrection economics. Jesus said a long time ago, it works like this. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus gives his life away, but he gets it back far better in the resurrection. And the same power, the same dynamic, is at work financially. If you try to hoard what you have, greed will wreck your soul and death will take your money. Paul wrote to Timothy, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Kind of a morbid story, but I like it for some reason. A dying man smells the aroma of chocolate chip cookies, his very favorite food coming from the downstairs kitchen, and he thinks to himself, i got to have the taste of just one more chocolate chip cookie before I die. So quite painfully, he rolls out of bed laboriously. He crawls down the stairs. He reaches a trembling hand up for one final taste when he feels a spatula whack his hand, and his wife says, put it back. They're for the funeral. Ask not for whom the spatula wax It wax for thee. See, if I clutch my money, death and the IRS will always get it. Spatula's coming. But if I sow it like a seed, just give it away, it seems like I'm losing it, but actually it will bear fruit in many, many different ways. In fact, Paul says, whoever sows generously will reap generously. He, that is God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. In other words, you can not outgive God. You just can't because God loves to give. Give And it will be given to you. Whoever is kind to the Lord lends to the poor, and he will reward them for what they have done. A little boy gives to Jesus his lunch of five loaves and two fish. And Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 plus people and had 12 baskets of food left over. I wonder if they sent that food home with the boy. Do you realize how much food 12 baskets of food is? If his mom asked him, son, we don't have a lot of food. Did you have any leftovers from lunch today? Yes, mom. We're going to need to buy a new fridge to hold them all. But this is not just something taught in Scripture. See, you can learn this in your life. People experience this every day. I want to invite you to go online Uh, at our website and check out a story by one of our elders, Milo Medin. Milo's family uh, uh, came from Serbia and lived in the Central Valley of California. His dad died when Milo was five years old. Nobody in the family spoke English. Milo had to bring his books home from school, tiny little guy for his mom and then eventually other siblings to learn English. There was a time when they needed food stamps to keep going. There was a time when Milo was in college, and he had to max out his credit cards for them to keep the farm. And Milo met God. And Milo learned about giving when he had nothing. And I cannot tell you, Milo has quite an extraordinary life these days, uh, how often when the elders meet, Milo will say, I want everybody in our church to understand the blessing of tithing because you cannot outgive God. It's so interesting. Uh, In our church, the San Jose campus has more people facing financial challenges than any other campuses, but San Jose, you also have a higher percentage of tithers than any other of our campuses. And so often that's the case. People who understand or know or have walked through financial pressure or challenges know the blessing that it is to trust God with their money. And I know at every single one of our campuses, there are so many generous people. And you all ought to know, you know, all the ministry that we do, that's all because of your support. All the caring for students, all the loving of our children, all the launching of campuses— uh, the paying of our staff, working with our missions partners. We don't have an endowment. We don't get grants for that stuff. Your generosity makes all of that possible. Another dimension of generous people generous people don't wait until they feel moved to give. Uh, Paul said something very interesting when he wrote to Timothy about financial realities. Paul said to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous. Command those who are rich in this present world. Who are those? Well, not me for sure. But I will be pretty soon. This is kind of exciting. I just got a phone call, true story that contained the greatest financial offer of my life. It was a recording. I didn't know the person on the other end, but they knew me. In fact, they told me it was their final attempt to reach me. Who knows how many times they tried. And they let me know, I have been pre-approved for a refinance arrangement. Not just approved, I have been pre-approved. They don't even know me, and they approve of me. And they told me this arrangement will allow me to pay off my student loans. This is amazing because I got those more than 30 years ago and thought they were all gone. But I got to respond in 48 hours. Otherwise, my pre-approved status will be revoked. We get bombarded with so many offers. Borrow this, spend this, buy this, consume that. We are so hungry to spend... Bloomberg reported that at the end of 2018, credit card debt hit what is now an all time high of $870 billion in the US alone. Overall debt in the US is $13.5 trillion, doesn't even include the government debt. But we're not rich, though. We're not rich. Command those who are rich in this present world, not me, of course. It's kind of strange. I was grumbling the other morning because I had to move a car. Someone in my family, who I will not name, left their car uh, in front of mine, blocking my car. And I had early in the morning to move their car out and then get my car out and then put their car back and then get back in my car. It was terrible. You know why I was grumbling? Because I did not have with me someone from a developing country who has no car. I didn't have somebody in the Bay Area with me who doesn't have enough money for a bus ride. That's why I was grumbling. We give through Compassion International to a little girl in Peru. I have been in the tiny little room where she lives. I promise you, if she and her mom had been with me, looking at a family with multiple cars and a home like ours, I promise you, if I had been with them, I would not have been complaining. But having to move an extra car. You know, sometimes we see a picture of somebody in need or someone in suffering. We might feel compassion and might think, well, I'm a generous person because I feel bad about poverty, or uh, maybe I even give enough if I feel bad enough. Uh, this is really interesting. A pastor named Andy Stanley talked about the power of deception in our financial lives. Denial makes me think I'm not rich even when I am, and denial makes me think I'm generous even when I'm not. Paul says, on the first day of the week, Resurrection Day now, I'm trusting God, each of you, this is about everybody, not just about a few folks with a lot of money, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. He doesn't say, wait until someone or something really moves you. In fact, notice, Paul wants all this done before Paul gets there so that people do not depend on some emotional appeal from Paul in order to be generous. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, a couple centuries ago, was going to hear a, a famous preacher in his day, George Whitefield, Benjamin Franklin said he had a few copper coins in his pocket with three or four silver dollars and five gold pieces. He had decided ahead of time that he wasn't going to give anything, but Whitfield described this orphanage he was raising money for in such a heartbreaking way that Franklin decided to put in his copper coins, and then he decided to give the silver to, and finally he just emptied his pockets into it. Uh, He wrote that a friend had come with him, and as a precaution, because his friend knew how persuasive Whitfield was, he had emptied his pockets before he came, so he wouldn't be tempted to give. But Whitfield was so good that this guy turned to the person next to him and asked him to lend money so he could put it in the offering. The man next to him was a Quaker who replied, At any other time, friend Hopkinson, I would lend to thee freely, but not now, for thee seems to be out of thy senses." Paul doesn't say, give when you feel moved. He doesn't say, give when you're out of your senses. He says, on the first day of the week, set it aside. Build this practice into the rhythm of your life. You can use auto-pay in our day. You can make it the first payment on the list. If you still use a checkbook, you can make it the first check you write. If you practice giving regularly now you will grow to feel more generous. If you wait till you feel generous to give, you will likely never grow into a truly generous person. Another dynamic with generous people, generous people don't wait until they have excess cash. Paul includes another remarkably subversive instruction here. He says, On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. He doesn't say, let the wealthy few among you give, because you are the philanthropists upon whom our financial strategy depends. Now, here's why the each one give teaching was so revolutionary. Again, we would tend not to catch this in our day. Uh, In the ancient Roman world of which Corinth was a part, the giving of gifts was practiced regularly by the wealthy and the powerful. And there was a technical term for this. They were called patrons. They would give money or food, and the, those who received were called clients. Their clients would incur a debt of obligation to the patron. The client would be in a permanently low status position. They would owe honor and service and loyalty to their patrons. They would literally, I'm not making this up, they would literally walk before their patrons on the streets of Rome or in Corinth and blow trumpets to honor their patrons' magnificence. So, giving happened in the ancient world. People saw it in Corinth, but it was always done to enhance the honor and status Of the wealthy and powerful at the expense of their clients. Now, for the first time, giving is a community deal the poor are no longer obligated to flatter and bow down and blow trumpets for their patrons. Now, everybody gives. Everybody's generosity matters. Everybody's generosity counts. Giving is an act of strength and dignity. And in fact, Jesus once looked at people giving and said it was an impoverished widow who actually demonstrated the greatest generosity of anybody there. The idea here is... Not just that everybody's giving is needed, it's that everybody needs to give. The practice of generosity puts us into the jet stream of kingdom reality. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi is talking about the practice of tithing, giving God the first 10% of resources that come to you. And God says something extraordinary, unprecedented. Test me in this, God says, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. This is the only time, so far as I know, in all of the Bible, with all of the commands that God gives, where God actually invites people, test me. I I dare you, try this. See if I'm not being truthful here. This is why we do Uh, what's called the Tithe Challenge. The idea is if you've never been a tither before, contact our church office and for 90 days, tithe. And let us know that you're going to do this and and send in that first 10% of what God brings to you. And we will set that aside for 90 days. And if at the end of those 90 days, tithing is not clearly a sustainable uh, capacity for you, God's not clearly involved in your finances, then we will return that money to you, no questions asked. And we've had Scores and scores of people do that and enter into a whole new spiritual experience with God. Generosity is the road to human flourishing. This is just wisdom. You can test this even if you don't believe in God. The non generous person thinks, I can't afford to give now because I don't have enough. When I have enough, then I'll be generous. But of course, the question is, how much is enough? Paul says, let each one set it aside. I was thinking about this. Uh, Very often in our services, uh, before the offering, we'll say something like, if you're just visiting today, you don't have to observe the Bible's commands to be generous. Just let it go. And it's kind of interesting. We don't say that about other wisdom in the Bible. We don't say, for example, the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But if you're just visiting today, don't worry about that one. This is something... Uh, For anybody, even if you don't believe in God, just test the generosity challenge. See if it is not true that when you become generous, God enhances your life uh, in every regard. I'll tell you one more story about this. I got this from Denise, who's on our staff at our San Jose campus. She said, we received a Connect card on Sunday from a man who wanted to come to church and give us a donation. He's been a regular attender now for a number of years, and I don't know much about his story except I know he's had some rough times, and I know for a while he was experiencing homelessness. He came on the campus on a weekday, and and they didn't even know at first uh, who it was that was there or or what he was doing there, but he walked in and and handed to Denise an envelope with a big smile, and, and she says, "'He asked me if I would count out the money. He wanted to be sure it was the right amount.' I counted out $10,000. I was speechless. I thanked him. We hugged. And I asked him if he was sure he wanted to give us this generous gift. I prayed. We talked more about his gift and his thoughts. And he told me when he was homeless, this is where he found God and he is no longer homeless. And he told me he wants us to use the money to help other people like him so that we can reach more people. The joy on his face was indescribable. Gang, no kidding. You cannot outgive God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are such a generous God. Thank you that you have given so lavishly to us. Thank you especially for your best gift, Jesus, who, although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. And I pray that you will help everybody who's a part of our church uh, to know, to experience the joy and faith that comes from living a generous life with a generous heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.